you have your Bible tonight, you can open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number three. Matthew, chapter number three. Um, in case you are unaware, uh, this entire year we've been using our Bible reading plan. We've been reading through the New Testament together as a church. And on, on Wednesdays in our midweek Bible study time, we've been taking a passage from our readings and we've been diving a little deeper into it uh, just to kind of ask God what he might have for us through his word. And so we're going to continue to do that tonight. Uh, we have finished our readings in Revelation and everybody said, Amen. All right, so uh, we finished up our time there, but now we have entered into the Gospel of Matthew. As a matter of fact, for the remainder of this year, we will be in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're where I am, or at least if you're reading at the same pace as I am reading at, I have read through Matthew chapter 6 as of today. Now as I'm reading Matthew, there are certainly plenty of things to think about uh, in the beginning of this Gospel. We could talk about the Christmas story, right? Seems relevant because we are entering into December, but to be honest with you, we're going to spend a lot of time on Sundays in Advent as we go through the Christmas season. So didn't want to jump into that too much, especially since we'll be looking at Matthew chapter one on Sunday. So let's skip that for now and we'll come back to it in some of our worship gatherings together in the future. We could certainly spend some time uh, looking at the greatest sermon that's ever been preached known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but in case you don't remember, although I'm sure you do, uh, a little over a year ago, we looked at the entire our Sermon on the Mount on Sunday mornings. So I thought I could just do one of those again, because you probably don't remember, right? But because we're so awesome, you would know all about it and tell me later that I repeated it. And so I was like, well, probably should stay away from the Sermon on the Mount. And I had an interesting conversation Sunday morning, just briefly with a few folks in our Sunday school class. Uh, the discussion revolved around the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter three. So I thought, let's spend some time looking at a very probably familiar passage of scripture that maybe like me you have had some questions about as to why Jesus would be baptized and so here's what I want to do I want us to accomplish a few things tonight I want us to look at the significance of Jesus's baptism. I want us to look at the practice of baptism among Christian churches today. Maybe you, like me, have also wondered why do people do baptism different, and is there an actual right way to practice the ordinance of baptism. And then I want us to look at why we practice baptism as Baptists, the way that we do, and why it's important for us. And so I, I, I thought, um, at least for me, and, and, and as I was thinking about you, have you ever thought much about the ordinance that we call baptism? Or are you like most good Baptists who just know that we should be doing it, especially because it's in our name, right? So where do you fall when it comes to your thoughts on baptism. Well, let's explore just a little bit. If you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 13. I just want us to look a little bit about what happens with Jesus, and then I want us to answer a few questions tonight about baptism. So look at verse 13. It says, 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, just a little context. Jesus obviously has been born. His family has settled in Nazareth, and he has now found his way to the popular ministry of John the Baptist, who has been baptizing lots of different people in the Jordan River. We don't know a whole lot about the life of Jesus at this point. So from his birth to the time that he's about 30 years old, we are now encountering Jesus as a man about to begin his ministry. And when we do, we find that he came to John to be baptized by him. Now what's significant about this initially is that Jesus purposefully goes to John to be baptized. He intentionally heads from Galilee to the Jordan in order to be baptized. He wasn't going to the Jordan just out of impulse. He isn't lured by the crowd surrounding John the Baptist. He goes there because the Father wanted him to, and Jesus was always about accomplishing God's will. Matter of fact, John the Baptist had just fulfilled prophecy. He had prepared the way for Jesus. This happened in the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, with him being the one that Isaiah talked about as the forerunner, the one who would pave the way for Christ. And so, Verse 14, Jesus has went to John in order to be baptized by him. And then John looks at Jesus and it says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? In other words, why am I baptizing you when you should be the one who should be baptizing me? This was John's statement. He knew that Jesus was the one that he had been preaching about, the one that he had been preparing people for. Now, John's relationship with Jesus is an interesting one. A lot of scholars oftentimes wonder, had John and Jesus met before this occasion? Now, maybe you say, Danny, why do they wonder this? Well, because they were family. So it's possible that at some point in time before this occasion, maybe as children at some celebration or some family gathering, maybe they had encountered each other before. As a matter of fact, John had recognized Jesus when they were both in the womb. You probably remember this. This is from Luke chapter 1, verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Well, the baby in the womb of Elizabeth was John the Baptist, the baby that made this baby jump was the one in the womb of Mary known as Jesus. And so if John recognized Jesus in the womb, then maybe he had recognized Jesus at other times in their lives as they had encountered each other because of family. However, John himself seems to suggest that they had never met before this occasion. Matter of fact, we talked about this in our study of the gospel of John recently. This is from John chapter one, verse 33. He said, I myself did not know him talking about Jesus, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy spirit. So apparently the same way that God made John aware enough to jump in the womb, God has now made him aware of Jesus again at his baptism. He would know for sure that this is the Messiah when the Spirit descended on him, which we'll read about in just a moment. However, John knows... However, John knows even before uh, that moment, whether we know if they encountered each other as kids or not, we know the recognition from the womb, but yet it seems as though he was not sure who he was as a man. Now, why would John the Baptist, a sinner, baptize the perfect son of God? John makes clear that he knew that it was Jesus that needed to baptize him, not with water, but with 
the Spirit. As a matter of fact, here's what John the Baptist said in John chapter 3, verse 30. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease, right? Like John was not a fool. He knew the value of Jesus' life above his own. This is why he's wondering, why should I baptize you when you should be the one who baptizes me? Chuck Swindoll wrote this. He said, John's actions and words reveal his confusion and embarrassment. Why would the judge and king, the son of God and son of David, whose sandals John was not even worthy to remove, permit himself to be immersed by John in an act that represented consecration for repentant sinners? Why would this be taking place? Matter of fact, this moment reminds me of Peter when Jesus wanted to wash his feet. You may not remember this, but here was Peter's response in John chapter 13. Jesus said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And then Peter said, this is the response I like. You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then Peter's like, okay, well, I don't want that alternative, right? And so then Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head, right? He's having the same experience that John's having. Hey, if you got to wash me, Jesus, don't stop with my feet. I'm not the one who should be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. But look at verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, John, consented to baptize Jesus. Now these are the first words, by the way, of Jesus that are recorded in Matthew's gospel account. The word for let it be so means to leave. It means to abandon. As a matter of fact, the word has often been translated as forgive. The idea is Jesus wants John to abandon this idea that he can't baptize Jesus. He wants him to let go of that idea, let go of that thought, and allow Jesus to follow God in obedience. Now the phrase, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, clearly from this statement, this was something Jesus had to do in obedience to God. He needed to be baptized to, as Jesus says, fulfill all righteousness. Now look at verse 16. We're going to come back, by the way, to answer, fill in some gaps. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. I love what Herschel Hobbes writes about this moment. He says, so both John and Jesus went down into the water, and John buried the king in the waters of baptism. It's a beautiful symbol of what baptism is all about. The word baptized means to dip or to immerse. The word was used to describe a blacksmith tempering a piece of iron by plunging it into a bucket of cold water. It was used to, to describe a piece of cloth being dipped into a vat of dye. It was used to describe a ship that was sunken. This is the reason why we do not sprinkle with water, but yet we fully immerse ourselves when we are baptized. Now, when Jesus came up out of the water, by the way, that phrasing also gives us a picture of him being buried in the water, right? Can't see him, comes up out of the water. It says the heavens were opened 
to him. Now this may give us a hint that only Jesus saw the heavens opened and only Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. There doesn't seem to be any indication that anyone else saw what Jesus saw except for him and John the Baptist. However, the gospel accounts also record this moment. You can read it in Mark 1, you can read it in Luke 3, you can read it in John 1. All of them have the baptism of Jesus. Could be that John the Baptist or Jesus testified to this moment. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 1 verse 32, John tells us that Jesus testified to that moment. Or it could be that others saw this moment too, and that's why it's recorded in all the gospel accounts. Either way, the Spirit anoints Jesus for the ministry that is ahead. Now look at verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, once again, did everyone present hear the voice of God or only John or only Jesus or only John and Jesus? Once again, we don't know if anyone else besides them heard and saw, but the spirit anoints Jesus for the ministry ahead and God announces Jesus as he's prepared to be the savior of the world. This is the account of Jesus's baptism. Now, as we read this, or at least as I do, it leads me to ask a few questions about about baptism. I hope it leads you to do the same. Let's begin our journey of questions. Number one, why did Jesus need to be baptized? Why, Danny, did Jesus need to be baptized? He's the son of God. He's the creator of the world. He's God himself. Why would he be baptized? Well, John's baptism is described earlier in Matthew 3 as a baptism of repentance. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Obviously, his baptism was one of repentance. Well, maybe you would ask, did Jesus need to repent. Of course, Jesus did not need to repent. He is perfect in all that he did and all that he does. He is sinless then, now, and forevermore. Well, did Jesus need to set an example for us? Well, the short answer is no. Of course he does. He sets a lot of standards for us, right? But his main purpose in baptism was not just to set a standard for us. There's more to his baptism than simply setting up an example for each of us. What well, did Jesus need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? My response to you once again would be, of course not. Jesus has always been filled with the Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. We believe this as we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Though they are different, they are one. Danny, how does that work? I do not know, but it is everywhere in the Bible. So if Jesus and the Spirit are one, then certainly he doesn't need to be filled with the Spirit, even more so proven by all of their involvement in this text as Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. So if none of these are why Jesus needs to be baptized, then why? Well, look back at Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Let me show you something. Jesus answered him. Remember, John didn't want to baptize him. Why would I baptize you? You should be baptizing me. Jesus gives us the answer to why he must be baptized. Here's what he said. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then what does John do? 
Okay, you're Jesus, whatever you say, right? By the way, this he consented probably should be a description of our lives every time Jesus tells us something too, amen, right? And so John does what Jesus says. Jesus gives us the reason for his baptism. There it is, to fulfill all righteousness. Well, Danny, what do you mean? Well, certainly the word righteousness refers to God's standard or what he requires from us, right? His righteousness is far beyond our righteousness. He has a goodness, a perfection, a standard that is well beyond our own, and certainly righteousness talks about that standard. But righteousness often refers as well to God's work in empowering his followers to achieve the righteousness that he requires. You say, Danny, what do you mean? God's standard is well above our own. Guess what that means? We can never achieve it. So if we can't achieve it, how can we have it? Well, the answer is simple. Jesus provides his righteousness to you and to me. The Apostle Paul speaks to the work of God in creating righteousness in us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Listen to what he wrote. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Are you doing the work? Can you be good enough? Can you achieve it? Unfortunately, no, neither can I. So guess who has to initiate the work and complete the work? God does. Guess who works in salvation? God works in salvation. Guess who is the author of salvation? God is the author of salvation. Who is the one who finishes it all? Is it you? Is it me? No. All of it is the work of Jesus himself. In fact, that is exactly what Jesus' baptism was accomplishing. It was accomplishing righteousness in us. I can never be good enough, righteous enough. I need God not only to save me from my sins, but to sanctify me from my sins as well. God doesn't just work in my salvation. He works in my sanctification every single day, and his baptism was accomplishing that work. Think of Jesus' baptism fulfilling all righteousness, not as Jesus being obedient to God, although he was, but think about it as this moment being a step in the plan of God to use the righteousness of Jesus to replace my unrighteousness. Let me give you a picture of this, okay? The sacrificial system in the Old Testament gives us a great representation, a type of what Jesus will once become. They had two different types of sacrifices. One was one in which they would slay a lamb that would be the punishment. Its blood would be shed for their sin. The other one was called a scapegoat. What would happen with the scapegoat is you would place your hand on its head and then you would send it out of the camp to wander out on its own. Now what was the difference? in the two. Well, the one that was slain, the blood, was the sacrifice for your sin. But that wasn't enough. The scapegoat then, in all of its perfection, was imputed upon the ones who sent it out. Here's the picture. Here's what Jesus did in his death. Not only did he pay the penalty for my sin, but he imputed onto me and to you his righteousness. I couldn't do it on my own. Not only could I not pay the penalty for my sin, I could not work work in me to become more like Jesus. Both of them are the work of Jesus at 
the cross. Listen to this from Romans 10, 3 through 4. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We don't need Jesus just to give us his death, friends. We need Jesus to give us his life. You with me? She said, okay, Danny, that's a lot when it comes to baptism. So what is the need in Jesus being baptized in Matthew chapter three? Well, let me show you a couple of things. The first one is this. Now let's just do both of those. We got to hurry up. I'm running out of time and I haven't even got through the first question. Jesus's baptism acts as a symbol for what he will do for the salvation of the world. It's a symbol, acts as one. For what he will do for the salvation of the world. Baptism has always been and will always be a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Think about those waters as if it was a grave. It was a symbol, a grave symbol of dying, being buried in the water, and then being raised out of the water. A symbol not only of the death of Jesus, but of his glorious resurrection. Defeating sin, defeating death, defeating the grave, and offering us new life, a better abundant life. Now you may not have thought about this and I'm not trying to get into too many doctrinal or theological discussions, but if Jesus died and that was the end of it, then thankfully he will have paid for the sins of the world. That's great. But his resurrection does not just pay for the sin debt. His resurrection gives us new life. We need them both. This is why when Jesus died, he didn't stay there. He resurrected and then ascended to the Father. Why? His resurrection was the defeat of sin and death in the grave. His resurrection was to offer us not just his death, but his life. We need them both. That's the symbol of baptism. Before Jesus ever climbs on the cross, he is baptized. Why? As an act of a symbol of the salvation he will bring to the world. He will die, be buried, but he will raise again, right? Rise again for all of us. Not just so that sin will be defeated, but so that life will be ours through him. Secondly, Jesus' baptism anoints him to be the sacrifice for our sins. His baptism identifies him with the sinful people that he came to save. Listen to this from Herschel Hobbes. I love it. He writes about the baptism of Jesus, and here's what he says. The spirit descending on him like a dove was preparation for what Jesus would one day face. He was being anointed as a king. He was being anointed as a, he wasn't being anointed as a king. I apologize. He was being anointed as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Oftentimes people mistake this moment with him being filled with the spirit. However, like priests, kings, and prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus was not being filled. He was being anointed for the ministry that was to come. What was the ministry to come? It was his sacrifice for the sins of the world. Let me show you this last one. Jesus' baptism announces to the world that the Messiah has come. John the Baptist's purpose was to pave the way for the coming king, the one who would bring salvation to the world. By being baptized by John the Baptist, God was proving to the world that Jesus was the king that they had been waiting for. He moved from the messenger to the Messiah, and Jesus is that Messiah. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist told us this himself in John chapter 1, verse 31. Here's what he said. 
but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. Why? That he might be revealed to Israel. She said, Any, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Well, his baptism was an act. It was a symbol for what he will do for the salvation of the world. It anointed him to be the sacrifice for our sins, and it announced him to the world that he was the Messiah they had been waiting for. I love the moment of God's voice pronouncing down on his son, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. I read a lot about why the spirit descended on him like a dove, why the father announced this from heaven. And even if no one else heard it, why would this be the proclamation, the declaration over Jesus? You know what I read a lot about? What Jesus will soon undertake after this moment, his ministry, the healings, the the works that he would do, the criticism he would take, the eventual death on the cross. Everyone I read about said how terrifying, how hard, how difficult his road was ahead. His baptism, not just the spirit anointing him to be the sacrifice that he would be, but his father announcing his great pleasure in him. All of this would be the encouragement needed for Jesus to carry out the task that no one else could do. It was all preparing the way for what Jesus would eventually do when he died on the cross for our sins. Listen, the cross is when Jesus saved me from my unrighteousness. The resurrection is when Jesus gave me his righteousness to now walk in his way and not my own. I don't just need his death. I need his life. You know what baptism was? A picture of both. It was preparing the way for what Jesus would eventually do. All right, let's go quick because the first two are very long. The last ones are not. All right, so let's hurry up. I got not much time. Second question that I thought about as I was reading through the baptism of Jesus, what is the purpose of baptism? Jesus obviously didn't need repentance, but certainly we do. Jesus obviously didn't need to be cleansed from sin. His was a picture of what would one day come, but we certainly do. And so I want to present to you as quickly as I can, three primary views about the purpose of baptism. I could give you just mine, but I'd really love for you to wrestle with scripture and see where you land as you think about what baptism means to the Christian faith. Here is the first one. Baptism is salvation. This is a primary view of the purpose of baptism. This is also known as baptismal regeneration. This view is held primarily by the Catholic Church. Catholics believe that faith can be given to people from the church or it can be given to people from their family. In this sense, infants can be saved through baptism because the church has accomplished faith for them or their family has passed their faith on to the child. This is why it's important to be baptized as an infant. The sooner you can be baptized or saved in their minds, the better. Catholics claim lots of passages of scripture, by the way, where Jesus extends healing grace to people based on the faith of others. In your outline, I've given you all of these verses. You say, Danny, did Catholics make this up? Is this some crazy belief? Is this something weird? Well, in my opinion, it is weird. Okay, that's one thing, and we'll talk about that in a second. But 
They did not just pull this out of the air. They have scriptural references in their interpretation of why they link baptism with salvation. Why they think a family's faith can be imparted into a child. Why they believe other people can impart faith into someone's life. They give examples of other people's faith being the reason why Jesus healed people in the Gospels. They use examples like the Old Testament where God spared the firstborn child in Egypt based on the faith of the parents who put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost post at the first Passover. Those kids had no idea what to do, but they were passed over. Why? Because their families made that decision on their behalf. Because all people are born into sin, babies need to be baptized to go to heaven if they die. Catholics believe unbaptized babies go to a purgatory-like place instead of heaven. It's also very works-based through what they call the sacraments. By the way, this is not the only works-based part of salvation. There are many sacraments within the Catholic Church. Now, why do Baptists not believe this about baptism? Well, I don't have time to read all of it because we have to hurry up, but if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, you would discover something very simple. I will highlight it by reading verse number 8. You ready? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You say, Danny, why do we believe baptism does not equal salvation? Why do we believe infants should not be baptized? Well, because baptism happens as a response to grace through faith, and it cannot be worked out on your own. You're not saved because you choose to be baptized. Salvation is not yours to complete, to initiate, to have any part in other than to receive by the grace of Jesus Christ. Also, 1 Peter chapter 3, we won't read it, but clearly a representation of how it's not an outward thing that is done, but yet an inward salvation brought about not by you and me, but by Jesus. However, baptism as salvation is a very popular notion or thought about what baptism is. Let's hurry up. Second one, primary view of baptism is that though baptism is not salvation, it is a necessary step in salvation. In other words, you are not completely saved until you are baptized. Now, there are a lot of different churches that believe this or denominations that believe this. Lutherans, Methodists, Episcopalian, Presbyterian. Church of Christ believes this, although some people would put Church of Christ in the first category. I would not, but some would. I'm not Church of Christ, by the way, so I'm not an expert on their theology or doctrines. But I would say they fit into the necessary step in salvation. Many denominations believe that baptism has replaced the Old Testament version of circumcision as a sign and seal of our covenant relationship with God. It is required not alone for salvation, but for the benefits of salvation to take place. In other words, salvation is incomplete without baptism. This view of baptism also requires faith in Jesus, not just baptism alone as a means to salvation, but once again, not complete until you are baptized. Now, the difference between this and Catholics are Catholics do not require any faith of your own. You can be baptized by the church or because of your family, and that will impart faith and salvation to you. This belief is that baptism is necessary for salvation to be completed and the benefits to be received, but yet not the only part that is required for salvation. Many of these denominations also baptize infants like Catholics do. However, they just baptize infants until they are ready to make a profession of faith on their own. We might think of this more like a baby dedication, although still a little different. Now, we'll wrestle with this in just a moment as quickly as we can. However, 
Church of Christ is a little different than the other denominations in the sense that they do not practice infant baptism. Rather, Church of Christ believes that baptism can't take place without someone first placing their faith in Jesus. It is a prerequisite to baptism, therefore infants cannot do it. Yet, faith in Jesus isn't completed unto salvation until baptism takes place. It is essential to salvation. Now there are tons of verses that I've given you in your outline. You can look at some of that on your own and wrestle with where you think baptism fits into our experience or our receiving of salvation. But I want to read you this quote. This is from Dan Chambers in his book, Churches in the Shape of Scripture. He is an advocate for this type of baptism, this view. Here's what he wrote. Baptism is the time and place that God forgives and saves. Baptism completes our response of saving faith, which begins with a confessed belief, continues with repentance, and is completed through baptism. So in this view, mostly, baptism is a necessary step, although it's not the only step in salvation. Now, why do Baptists not believe this about baptism? Well, several reasons, but once again, I would highlight two verses for you. Ephesians 2, 8, again, reminds us that nothing saves us other than the grace that is through God through faith. Both of these understandings of baptism imply that we have a work in salvation. As Baptists, we believe we have no work in salvation. It is all from Jesus. But I also love Romans 2, 29. This is from the Apostle Paul. He said, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So for those who believe this is a new circumcision or a part in which we play in the covenant relationship of God being completed through an act of our own, Paul says it has nothing to do with an outward act. It all has to do with an inward change that God brings about in salvation. Okay, this leads us to the last one. Baptism, third primary view, is a symbol of salvation. It's a symbol of of salvation. This, of course, as many of you know, is the Baptist view of baptism. It is primarily different than any other denomination or view that we've mentioned. Baptists believe that baptism is important because Jesus commands it. However, it's important as a symbol of salvation, not as a step or as salvation itself. This is most commonly referred to, probably in our vernacular, as believer's baptism. Once someone has placed their faith in Jesus, they follow in obedience through baptism as an outward symbol of an inward change. Now listen, there are tons of scriptures on this. I don't have time to read them uh, as well, but Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26, beautiful passage on what salvation looks like, how God gives us his righteousness because of our faith by his grace. That is how salvation is worked out, not by baptism. Uh, the Baptist faith and message, I think I have it in the wrong spot. There it is. We'll come back. Here's what our statement of faith says. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Listen, there are plenty of scriptures in Acts, there are plenty in Romans, plenty in Galatians, all of them pointing to the fact that baptism in the New Testament church only happened once someone placed their faith in Jesus. Once they were saved, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Then they were baptized. The only 
only thing we need to be saved is grace, grace through faith, not grace through faith plus something else. This is the major differences in the doctrine of baptism. Lots of other denominations believe that you have a part in it. Baptist, we believe that it is all done by Jesus. All right, let's move to question number three, just kind of quickly. Who should be baptized? We covered this a little bit already. Infant baptism, believer's baptism, those are the two primary responses. Now, I do want to take a second here because I want you to think about something. I want to stir the pot a little bit. For those of you who think, Danny, this infant baptism thing is crazy. Why would anybody believe this? Well, let me help you understand why this is such a wrestling understanding of Scripture for so many people. You've heard of something talked about before, probably known as the age of accountability. Have you heard this? Right? We refer to that as the moment that someone can believe in Jesus and is rightly held accountable to place their faith in Christ. Well, what do you do until that point in time? What do you do until someone reaches the age of accountability? Are they spared already? Well, that's difficult if you believe the only way to heaven is through faith in Jesus. If you believe that's the only way to heaven, then what happens to people who have not placed their faith in Jesus? Yes, I'm talking about a baby. Yes, I'm talking about a child that dies prematurely. I'm talking about someone with maybe a mental handicap who will never get to the point where they fully understand what it means to be a believer in Jesus. Never gets to a point where they reach the age of accountability. They may never be able to receive believers baptism. What do you do in that case? Well, this is why a lot of denominations believe in infant baptism. They would say that that spares them, saves them, until they're able to come to their own knowledge of saving faith. And if that never happens, then that's okay. They were baptized, and that will be the way that they get to heaven. Now listen, I'm not a proponent of infant baptism, but I am telling you, for those of you who think that is ludicrous, that is crazy, why would they ever believe that? Well, there are lots of other doctrines that play into what you might think about baptism. And if you think it has a part in sparing you from sin until you're able to be accountable on your own, then this might be a response that you would have. I will let you wrestle with that on your own. We don't have time. All right, let me show you the fourth thing. How should we be baptized? We touched on this already as well. Should we sprinkle a little bit on your head or should we immerse? The word used for Jesus being baptized certainly means immersion. However, there seems to be occasions in the New Testament where full immersion seems hard to imagine possible. Let me give you a couple of examples. Did the, did the Philippian jailer leave his post in prison in order to be baptized? Probably not. So did they bring some type of water or sufficient water for him to be sprinkled or whatever that might look like? Or did Paul leave Ananias to find sufficient water? Probably not. Was water brought to Cornelius' house for baptism? Also, probably not. I, I wouldn't get too concerned about the way in which someone is baptized as much as I would uh, as to why they are baptized. And so let me just stress before we move on to the last point, um, there are certainly some differences in, in the way that denominations practice 
baptism. However, I would say for the most part, as long as the baptism is believer's baptism, faith placed in Jesus followed by baptism as a commitment to our walk with Christ, then I think we are in good company. I wouldn't argue too much about when someone is baptized or if they were sprinkled or if they were immersed, not as important as to why they are baptized. Now, I want to wrap this up because we've looked at a lot of information about baptism, and to be honest, we could spend several nights looking at the different views of baptism and why it's important. However, what does all of this actually mean for us? Well, all of this leads to one final question about baptism. If it's a symbol of my relationship with Jesus and doesn't have an effect on my salvation, then we have to ask ourselves this. Why is baptism important for us today. Well, let me give you a couple of reasons just to wrap all of our discussion up for tonight. First of all, baptism is a symbol of salvation. Jesus died for our sins. Baptism is a beautiful picture of the sacrifice Jesus made to pay our sin debt. Listen to this from Colossians chapter 2 verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Listen, when we get baptized, we are able to give a testimony of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The water acts like a grave. We are placed in the water, dying to our old lives, and when we come out of the water, we're identified with Jesus in his resurrection. Have you received his free gift of salvation? If so, have you been baptized? If you answer no to either of these questions, then certainly we should talk tonight before you leave. Baptism is a symbol of salvation. Secondly, listen, baptism is a symbol of separation. We died to our old lives and have been raised to life in Jesus. Listen to this from Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are no longer the old sinful person we once were. We now belong to Jesus. Have you been living like Jesus, separated from the old life? Baptism is a symbol of salvation. It's a symbol of separation. Also, thirdly, listen to me. Baptism is a symbol of structure. We're baptized into the church, lowercase c, and into the church, capital C. We need relationships for growth to become more like Jesus. When we're baptized, we're testifying to our faith in Christ, but we're also committing ourselves to a local body of believers. Baptism into the church means we're committing to being held accountable by a group of like-minded people, a family, so that we can become more like Jesus. Though this isn't specifically mentioned in the New Testament, the Great Commission explains that making disciples happens through salvation, it happens through baptism, it happens through through teaching. And how can this happen outside of a community of believers? But I also want to show you this. Baptism is a symbol of salvation, a symbol of separation, a symbol of structure, but also baptism is a symbol of service. We've been given a new life to live in service to Jesus. That life includes obedience to all that Christ commands, including his command to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that he has commanded. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How are you serving Jesus 
with your life? How are you being obedient to him? Listen, as we end this discussion tonight, there's plenty of other things we could talk about, plenty of questions that we can answer. And certainly I'm willing to have more conversations about what baptism is and why it's important for us. But listen, before we leave, let me just remind you of this. Don't just shrug off baptism like it's not important in the life of a believer. It's very important because of what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes our commitment to Christ, our commitment to his commission, and our commitment to his church. Friends, baptism is important in our walk with Jesus.